the fear of the Lord can be applied to every single context of our lives. Because the Bible talks about every context of our lives. If it is our thinking, our thought life, or if it is our emotions, our desires, our marriage, if it is where we work as an employee or as, as an employer, the Bible has so much to say about every part of life. And the fear of the Lord touches every part of who we are. So my goal today is to show how the fear of the Lord can be contextual in different areas as a single, as a person searching a marriage partner, and as a person married. Then also we want to talk about what it looks like to be to study the Word of God in the fear of the Lord. So first I wanted to just um, kind of clear the air as to does the fear of the Lord fit into the New Testament? Ought we to even consider the fear of the Lord now that we are in the dispensation of grace? Well, I ask myself this question as a New Testament Bible teacher and as a pastor who pastors and shepherds a church in the New Testament. I ask myself, does my theology include Romans 11.22? The Bible says, Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. The kindness and the severity of God. Can I teach the kindness of God by bringing the gospel and the severity of God by seeing who God is and that He is just and that He is perfectly holy and that He cannot and will not compromise to be compatible with fallen man. No, He needed to make a way for fallen man to become compatible with Him once again. I ask myself, can I preach 1 Peter 2, 17? She says, honor all people, love the brotherhood, but fear God. Can I teach that? How about teaching Matthew 10, 28, where it says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. How about 2 Corinthians 5, 11? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. I read that and I thought, <clears throat> people who understand the fear of the Lord make great evangelists. Because here the Apostle Paul, he says, knowing the fear of God, we go ahead and we evangelize. Also known, uh, you know, well misinterpreted verses is Philippians 2.12. It says, so then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. So I ask myself, am I able as a New Testament pastor and teacher to put front and center the fear of the Lord even though we live by the power and the grace of God? So it almost seems like a contradiction. Like how do we... How do we talk about the goodness of God and the fear of God? Because somebody says, hey, wait a minute, Jacques. Uh, God has not given me a spirit of fear. He's given me a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. I have no spirit of fear. Don't even tell, tell me about anything with the word F-E-A-R. Well, you see, there is a difference between being scared of God and having the fear of the Lord. 
We dealt more in-depth regarding the subject last week. But it's not the same thing to fear God and to be scared of God. Those are two different things. Exodus 20 verse 20 really explains it clearly. This is where Moses, he was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt into a desert to meet God. And here God meets them. But God comes down to the mountain and they are absolutely freaking out. Moses, we don't want to meet God. Oh, Moses, we are scared of God. Here's Moses' reply to them. He says, verse 20, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God may be with you. That's a strange thing. Don't be afraid. God has brought you the fear of the Lord. But then he says to keep you from sinning. So he gives us the purpose as to why he came to give us the fear of the Lord. So don't be afraid. Don't be scared of God. He's bringing you the fear of the Lord, which he then says will keep you from sinning. So you will find God's purposes in the fear of the Lord, which are to uh, make sure that we hate evil and that we walk away from sin. That we would hate evil and walk away from sin. In Proverbs 18, 13, it confirms, it's, it says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And I almost feel like this is probably, and I know it is, a message that's completely absent in the body of Christ. Why? Because it doesn't seem like the church at large hates evil. It's almost like they vote for it at times. They support it in many ways. They participate in many ways. They've, they overlook it in many ways. And the church today is not a body known by the world as those who hate evil. But the Bible says it is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So anybody who absolutely fears God absolutely hates evil. You see, you cannot love without also hating. The reason God hates so intensely evil is because He loves you so much. You see, it's like me and my son. I love my son so much, I hate everything that tries to destroy his life. And for those who fear the Lord, hate evil. Proverbs 16.6 says, And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. So it's the fear of the Lord that causes us, number one, to hate evil, but number two, to walk away from sin. It is the fear of the Lord that does that. So Moses was saying to the Israelites, Don't be scared, but celebrate, because God has come to deliver you from evil and from sin by bringing you the fear of the Lord. You see, to the unbeliever and to, to the believer, the fear of God is not the same thing. While the unbeliever has a fear of God that torments him because he knows he's not right with God and he knows that judgment is coming, condemnation is coming. So while the unbeliever has a fear of God that torments him, the believer has a fear of God that blesses him. 
It says in Proverbs 28, 14, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. While the unbeliever's fear of God causes dread, the believer's fear of God is a source of delight. It's a delight to fear God. Nehemiah 1 verse 11 says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in the fear of your name. It's a delight for the believer to fear God and to tremble before Him because the fear of the Lord is clean. The fear of the Lord sanctifies. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. It's the beginning of wisdom. <clears throat> While the unbeliever's fear of God makes him cower and hide from God, just like Adam did because of his sin, the believer's fear of God makes him cared for or feel cared for and safe and secure. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, a trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord, which is the opposite of fear, whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So the amount of benefits and blessings that the person has who uh, um, fears the Lord, those blessings and those benefits are inexhaustible. And I'm, and I'm hoping to get you to go like, I need to grow in the fear of God. I need to walk in the fear of God, live in the fear of God. Because look at these blessings. Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. It's not for those who trivialize Him. No, no, no. Friendship with the Lord is reserved for those who fear Him. Proverbs 22, 4 says, <clears throat> The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, are honor, and life. Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. However, there's also a very high price to pay for choosing not to fear the Lord. Very high price. Can I read this to you? Are you all with me this morning? Yeah. Oh, you got to buckle up because we, we're about to come into a, um, we're about to take off actually, into uh, um, putting the fear of the Lord into context. But I just want to show you um, how how fearful it is to not fear the Lord. <laughs> Look at this, Proverbs 1.26. It says, I will also laugh at your calamity. This is God speaking. He says, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes, God says. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish comes upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer them. I will remain silent. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and they did not choose to fear the Lord. God says He mocks, He laughs at people's calamity and the terror that will befall them, the anguish and the distress, when that day comes, why? Because they chose to not fear the Lord. So what is the fear of the Lord? What is the fear of the Lord? Again, last week we did go into more depth. I want to give you a nutshell version of the definition of the fear of the Lord. Now to the believer, the fear of the Lord is not a dread, it's a delight. 
To the believer, this new creature, the, the fear of the Lord means your perspective and your understanding of God is that it is so very powerful, that it is so perfectly holy, that it is so thoroughly just. You are in awe at Him because He is ever loving, ever gracious, ever kind. He is so supremely glorious that you would not dare to run away from Him, but you would rather run to Him for shelter. You would run to Him for protection. It's almost like that picture of Aslan in Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia. There he is to be feared, but it's him who makes me secure. It is him, the one to be mostly feared above all, yet he's the one that brings the greatest comfort and protection to me. This is the believer's fear of God. They stand at awe in His power, at awe in His greatness, but at the same time so comforted by His strength. This is the fear of God in the life of the believer. He is so inviting. He is so promising. You shudder and you tremble at the idea of walking away from Him. The fear of the Lord is not a commandment to obey. Many people go like, all right, I've got to go obey another commandment. No, it's not a commandment to obey. The fear of the Lord is an attitude of the heart that causes you to delight in obeying Him. That is the fear of the Lord. Why do I love giving myself to God? That's the fear of the Lord. Why do I run to Him? It's the fear of the Lord. Why do I tremble before His Word and I'm at awe at His Word, at Scriptures? Because I fear the Lord. I love obeying Him. I delight in Him. It's the fear of the Lord. You see, the unbeliever's fear of God is completely different because their fear of God is tormenting. Their fear of God is hell. Today, however, I wanted to put this concept of the fear of the Lord into real time, into real life context. So, I wanted to first talk about the fear of the Lord in the life of a single person. And I'm not, I'm not identifying anybody specific, right? <laughs> CJ, I'm kidding with you, brother. So, uh, the fear of the Lord. CJ, I'm not talking to you or just to you. The fear of the Lord in the life of a single person. But let's first go to the fear of the Lord in the life of a single woman. The fear of the Lord in the life of a single woman. The Bible says in Proverbs 31 verse 30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So this verse tells me that a God-fearing single woman, she may be charming, she may be beautiful, but she doesn't find her value in her charm and her beauty. On the contrary, she finds the value of her life in the fact that she trembles before God. She trembles before the Word of God. No matter what the cost, she gives herself to it. On the contrary, she finds that value that God offers and those benefits that God brings 
because she fears. Queen Esther was somebody just like that. Queen Esther was beautiful, presumably richly adorned. Yet she wasn't deceived by vanity. She was available to obey God, the very God whom she feared. Whatever it is, God, yes, I will do it. Yes, I will give myself because she feared God. The fear of the Lord as a single man, number two. I've got a few concepts here. Well, one concept, fear verses. The fear of the Lord. What does it look like in the life of a single man? Genesis 13, 13, it says, But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. All right, so when I read that, I thought, okay, so they were exceedingly wicked and they were exceedingly sinful. But then it says, sinful against the Lord. You see, their sin to everyone seemed like it was horizontal, but to God, it was vertical. It was a Godward sin. It was a Godward offense. Single God-fearing men realize that their immoral actions are not only against another, but ultimately it's Godward. It's against God. You live before God, even if nobody ever finds out, even if nobody ever sees. You live before God. We see King David echo the same eternal truth after the prophet Nathan came to him about his, you know, his relationship that he had with Bathsheba. In Psalm 51 verse 4a, it says, Against you, you only have I sinned, God, and done what is evil in your sight. When did David say this? After Nathan came to him and told him, you committed that sin. And he goes, well, I mean, yeah, I sinned against Bathsheba. He didn't say that. He fell on his knees and he says, God, against you. It was a Godward sin for him to commit adultery with Bathsheba. It was a Godward sin for him to take the life of Uriah. And you see, the fear of the Lord in a single man's life is that he recognizes that he lives before God. You see, when we exclude the fact that sin is against God and against God's perfectly holy nature, if, if we exclude this idea of it being a Godward sin, we cannot understand sin for what it really is. Sin is a violation against the nature of a perfectly holy and fearful God. That's what sin is. And because we don't see God as being fearful, we don't actually think we sinned. We go like, well, I made another mistake, you know, I... I made a mistake. I, I, I'm not perfect. We're all just human, and we have that conversation. But when we realize how perfectly holy and awesome our God is, and that our sin is against Him, and against His perfect character and nature, it becomes a fearful thing. We suddenly start second... We, we take a second, second uh, thought before we act. But the fear of the Lord in a young single man's life or in a single man's life is that he lives before God. 
See, and this is what David did when he was with Bathsheba, when he killed Uriah. He thought he was going to undo his sin by marrying Bathsheba. He was going to quickly fix everything, okay? All right, I sinned against this woman. I'm going to quickly fix everything. I'm going to marry her. But there was no way of making right with another person what you broke with God. It just doesn't work that way. You, let me say it again. There's no way of making right with another person the very thing you broke with God. You have to repent before God over the thing that you did, even though nobody says they got hurt, but it was an offense to the holiness of God. You see, many today say, no harm, no foul. No harm, no foul. Hey, if nobody got hurt, it's not a sin. As a matter of fact, it was all consensual. It's just nobody got hurt, nobody's offended, nobody's angry. But they do not realize what makes sin so exceedingly evil is not that it's against another person. It's not against another human being, but it is ultimately against a perfectly holy God. I want to show you this short video of the definition of sin and how that definition of sin is really a sin against God. Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not sacred, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. We find another story in the Bible, book of, um, well, the story of Joseph. As you know, Joseph went through many hard times, abused and misused and discriminated against, and hated, and left for dead, lied about. 
There was this time when he was approached by Potiphar's wife. Potiphar was out of town. Potiphar's wife wanted to sleep with him. Here's his response. Genesis 39 verse 9. There is no greater, no one greater in this house than I. And he, Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great evil and sin against God? We see Joseph also understood his sin wasn't going to be against Potiphar. His sin was going to be against a holy God. You see, the God-fearing single man assesses his choices. Not as profitable versus unprofitable. But as a decision that is for God or against God. Again, let me say that the God-fearing single man assesses his choices, not as being profitable versus unprofitable, but as a decision that is for God or against God. And this is how the God-fearing single man lives his life. He doesn't make life decisions for personal pleasure or gain but rather for God's delight and for God's honor and for God's great name. This is how the single young man who fears the Lord lives his life. Number three, I want to deal with the context of marriage or choosing a marriage partner. So the question is, and this is always a fun one, the fear of the Lord in choosing a marriage partner. How do you choose a marriage partner if you are the person who fears God? You see... I thought about this. Is that you cannot even buy a car, you can't buy a house, you can't buy a gun, you can't even buy alcohol without verifying um, your identification. You have to show some ID, right? <laughs> if you want to do any of those things. And in the same way, before giving somebody your future and giving somebody your life in marriage, there ought to be a few verifications that will confirm this is the right person, all right? There has to be some kind of identification. Okay, this is it, this is the person. And I like to boil things all the way down to the bottom through deductive reasoning and finding out, okay, God, what is it that we have to look at when verifying a person that's right for marriage? Now, I'm saying this considering or assuming you are the right person God wouldn't mind them marrying, okay? Don't become the person God would take this individual and, and protect them from you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is the person God would want you to marry if you are the person you are looking for. <laughs> All right, so yeah, I have the top four verifications for a marriage partner. The top four verifications for a mar marriage partner. Uh, number one, it's the person has to be a verifiable believer. Do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. They have to be a verifiable believer. Not words, but fruits was what Jesus required for a tree to be identified. Not words, but fruits was what Jesus required for a tree to be identified. You go like, well, what's fr what fruits? I mean, this guy's got a good heart. I mean, isn't that a fruit enough? Well, the Bible outlines for us what these fruits are. It gives us the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 22, 23 gives us the fruits of righteousness, 
Philippians 1 and 11, gives us the fruits of keeping with repentance, which is Matthew 3, 8. I want to just pause there for a second. Matthew 3, 8. In keeping with repentance, the fruits of repentance. In keeping with these fruits. In other words, regeneration, the real born-again experience, is preceded by and followed by keeping with repentance. Repentance. So, the first is, the person has to be a verifiable believer and do not, under any circumstance, be unequally yoked with them. Number two, that person should have a verifiable reputation. I am not who I say I'm going to be. I currently am what I've already done. <laughs> you have to be a verifiable, you have to have a verifiable reputation. I believe that marriage isn't two people coming together. I believe it's two worlds coming together. It's just two worlds. It's two pasts. It's two families. <laughs> it's two mindsets, oftentimes two cultures coming together. And that is marriage. Therefore, A person who says they are one thing, but their reputation says that they are another thing, we have a problem. Because Proverbs 22 says, verse 1, Choose a good reputation of a great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. Your reputation is worth more valuable than all the riches you can earn in your lifetime. Your reputation speaks for you. It tells the story of your character. It tells the story of your way of thinking, of your value system. Your reputation tells me what you value in life. You see, there's a difference between discrimination and discernment. And discernment says, hey, your reputation tells me what you're all about. All right? Your reputation is the thing that allows me to assess whether this is a good idea or not. My reputation speaks to you right now. That's why I can't drive sometimes the way I feel like driving inside here, <laughs> you know, because, uh, you know, I can't say things I sometimes want to say. I can't, I have to sometimes zip my lip, and the Bible says it's very, you know, it's dangerous to keep, keep that mouth running because you get yourself into trouble. It says, where, where there's many words, sin is not absent, Proverbs says. So every one of us, we have to learn uh, to be self-disciplined, which is, by the way, the last fruit of the Spirit. We all have to be self-disciplined. Why? Because if you're just a loose cannon and this becomes your reputation with everybody, you know, that reputation speaks. This is huge. Why is reputation so important when it comes to choosing a life partner? You have to have a verifiable reputation because when it comes to dating, of course, people always put the best foot forward, right? Look, I'm very self-disciplined. And you go like, yeah, but everybody that's known you for 20 years does, does, doesn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, look, look, I'm a really kind person. Yeah, but 
nobody else thinks you are. And I'm you trying to sell yourself to me? But those who know you are not buying into your sales pitch, you know? And so reputation is so important. And the Bible says it's worth more than the money you can make through your lifetime. Therefore, reputation, a verifiable reputation is important. So here's one thing. When it comes to marriage, now that we're talking about reputation, what about the reputation are we looking for in marriage? Well, you ask the question, how do they treat their authorities? How do they treat their authorities? Do they treat their current authorities with respect or disrespect? Are they a respectful or disrespectful person when it comes to those who have oversight over them? Whether it be a parent or whether it be a police officer or are they respectful to authority figures? Or are they disrespectful to authority figures? You see, the worst possible place for you to go and find a spouse in this day and age is not in a bar. That is a bad place to find a spouse. Really bad. But there's a worse place. It's to go to a downtown riot somewhere and find yourself a nice rebellious partner. It's like, I'm looking for somebody who wants to overthrow authority. I'm looking for that person. I want to marry that person, not realizing that the moment I marry her, I become the authority she's now going to try and overthrow again. I mean, it's not that people change when they get married. No, when they get married, they become more of who they already are. It only magnifies who they are. And so if, 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 you, if you find, you know, this perfect lady, you think, okay, well, she's Christian, but, you know, she really lies to her parents all the time. And she disobeys her father all the time. She disrespects him. That's the big one. She disrespects him. Trust me, it's not going to be nice. Because um, you get it. So there has to be a verifiable reputation. The verifi a verifiable reputation, especially of that person's levels of respect. And you can never demand something from another that you yourself are unwilling to give. I can't demand that I have a respectful wife when I am a disrespectful husband, see? So again, I'm not talking about the person choosing. I'm talking about who's been chosen here, okay? And make sure God's not protecting you from the person you have now discovered to be the perfect match. So number two was the person has to, be, has to have a verifiable reputation. Number three is the person should be a verifiable steward in the kingdom of God. This is huge. I remember a story by Robert Morris, Pastor Robert Morris in Texas. He has a massive congregation. He has a huge ministry, but he's a great man of God and a great teacher. And Robert Morris's daughter says to him one day, Dad, um, I need to introduce you to somebody. I, I'm, I've got a big liking in and... and you know, we don't believe in dating. We believe in courtship. So if, if a relationship comes to the fore, you know all the, all the motives are on the table, right? Okay, I'm not doing this because I want to play around. I'm doing this because I'm actually interested in getting married. So, okay, so she, she says, Dad, let me introduce you to him after service. He says, yeah, I'll go into the lobby and I'll meet him. And Robert Morris says he walks up to the young man and he said, um, he said, 
before he was introduced, he says, are you a tither? <laughs> and whether it be 10% or 23% or whatever, you know, um, your theology of that specific concept is, uh, the man said, yes, sir. He says, because uh, if we can't start there, we can't go anywhere. I mean, if we cannot be committed to God, even in that small degree, how are we committed to God in a larger degree? The bottom line is just this. How faithful is the person you're looking at with money? Because there are two things that people are tempted with and fall over more than any other. It's sex and money. Those two issues right there. Sex and money. Those two are the biggest false gods. People turn into false gods than anything else in their life. There's really three. It's sex, money, and pride. But sex and money are very, very prominent. And so if you cannot be self-disciplined when it comes to that, uh, self-discipline is going to be difficult everywhere else. You see, if they cannot bring to God the 10% minimum during times of prosperity, what makes you think they will give God their entire lives during times of persecution? You see, if they can't be faithful with a lesser portion during easy times, they won't commit in a greater portion during harder times. And I'm saying this to you, not because I wouldn't even put this at the end of the sermon. Many pastors do that so that, okay, ready to receive the offering. Let's talk about this issue. Okay, that's not what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to say to you, if you think we are moving towards harder times as a church, where we are going to be oppressed, where we are going to be persecuted, let me just tell you, it's easy to say, Oh, I'll give God my everything. Oh, I give God my everything. I'm committed 100%. Really. You have to look at yourself to see if, in fact, you're ready to face off with those times that are in our future. Because <clears throat> if you struggle to be faithful with the lesser portion during easy times, you will be, it'll be very hard for you to commit a greater portion during harder times. So number one, we found that in choosing a life partner, the first person has to be a verifiable believer. The second, that person has to be a, have a verifiable reputation. Thirdly, that person has to be a verifiably uh, steward of faithful steward of God's kingdom. And number four, the person who is a verifiable student of scriptures a verifiable student of scriptures. So here is something I've noticed over time. People are highly committed. Highly committed. In the beginning of the Christianity, they're highly committed to the God of their imagination. Highly committed. I love God. The God I, oh, I just can't imagine who He is. I love Him. But the problem comes when they learn about the God of Scripture. Now that becomes like they fall in love with God, just like in the marriage, and then suddenly they get to know Him, and they fall out of love with Him. And so I want to say to you, for longevity's sake and for your posterity's sake, choose somebody who is a ver verifiable student of Scripture already. If they are able to tremble before His Word now, they will tremble before His Word then. No matter how hard His Word is, if you find that person 
who trembles at the word of God, not at their idea of who God is, but at the word of who, uh, what God, who God says He is, then you cannot and you should not ever let that person pass by. Marry them immediately. I'm serious. Marry them. Don't like the hair. I don't care. You can change that. If you can't grow it, you can buy it. I mean, you can change things. <laughs> Marry that person. Why? Because if that person allows Scripture to hold them accountable, then you don't have to <laughs> for the rest of your life. If there's a person that can be held accountable by God, even when no one's looking, what's your... <laughs> you don't ever have to. Nobody has to. Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2b says this. But to this one I will look, God says, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. God says, uh, there's 7 billion people on the earth today. Ah, oh, but that one I will look. I will look to that person. I will keep my eye on that person. Why? Because they tremble at my word. You can't fear God and trivialize God's word at the same time. The only proof that I fear God is because I tremble at His word. I always say, I, I refuse. I will not elevate myself above Scripture's. I've gone through so many different church backgrounds <laughs> in my life. And all I can tell you is I, can't, I, I, I refuse to elevate myself above scriptures in order to be compatible with some kind of camp. You know, so as a non-denominational church, God, thank you, Lord, you know, uh, as a non-denominational church, let's talk about something. If there's something here that that we need to view from a different perspective, then let's do that. That's wonderful. Because we, we will not argue with the Scripture. We will not elevate and come up against what God has already said. Because if we did, we would not fear God. Number four, let's talk about the fear of the Lord in parenting. The fear of the Lord in parenting. I just want to say this. So in choosing a life partner, make sure that they are a verifiable believer. Make sure that they have a verifiable reputation of respect. Make sure that they have a verifiable um, stewardship, faithful stewardship before the Lord. And number four, make sure that they are a verifiable student of scriptures. All right. The next context is the context of parenting. And uh, excuse me for flying through these, but... I want to speak to you as the intelligent people you are. The fear of the Lord in the context of parenting. Raising your children is your life's work. It's, Tina and I have decided that our purpose in this life is to raise our children to become instruments in the hands of God for His purposes and not ours. This is your life's work. Fear of the Lord in parenting. Raising your children not for worldly successes, but rather for God's purposes. And so here we see in Genesis 18 verse 19, 
It says, For I have chosen Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So I've chosen him that he may train and teach his children. This is why I chose him. Ever wonder why God chose Abraham? He predestined and chose him. Chose him. <laughs> chose. Did you know there is such a word? He chose Abraham <laughs> because Abraham was going to raise his kids in the way of the Lord. So like Abraham, the person who fears the Lord has complete different goals for their children than those who do not fear the Lord. Those who fear the Lord, their goals for their children are absolutely opposed, completely opposite to those who don't fear the Lord. Because some people, let me just say this. So like Abraham, the God-fearing parent's goal for their child is not to be happy in life, but to be holy in life. The God-fearing parent's goal for their child is not to be celebrated by the world, but rather to be commended by God instead. The goal of the God-fearing parent, the goal that they have for their child, is not to be embraced by culture, but to be accepted by God in Christ Jesus. The goal for their child is not to excel in worldly systems. That's not the goal saying it shouldn't happen. I'm just saying for a God-fearing parent, that's not the ultimate goal. It's not to excel in worldly systems, but to be effective as an instrument in God's hands. This is my ultimate for my children, that they can be used by God, that they'll be instruments in God's hands, that they will live holy before my God, that they will fear God, just like God called Abraham for that purpose, he called him so he would train his children in fearing God. But people who don't fear God, their goals for their children is like, you know, I've got to make sure you land a good job. I've got to make sure you get into a good college. I've got to make sure you get yourself a good education. Those things are good. I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying those ought not to be the ultimate goals a parent has for their children. You get what I'm saying? Number five, the fear of the Lord in marriage. The fear of the Lord in marriage. We've got about 10 minutes left, so let's dive into this one. <laughs> of course, every one of these subjects are much wider and deeper than what we are dealing with today. But these certainly are some bullseyes we can aim at. The fear of the Lord in marriage. Now, remember... That you are married to your spouse, but you are married to them before God. You are married to your spouse, but you give an account to God for the marriage that you have with your spouse. So we're going to look at what does a God-fearing marriage look like? Ephesians 5.21 starts it off. It says, And be subject one to another, defer 
one to another, submit one to another in the fear of Christ. All right, so here we get it. This is possible in the fear of Christ. This is impossible when we do not fear God. See? And be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. In other words, when I attempt to be to have a biblical scriptural marriage, it is because I fear God and it's not because my wife is so wonderful or your husband is so awesome. No, it's because you fear God. And when you cannot have a scriptural marriage to a degree in spite of your questionable husband or your rebellious wife, if you can't, it's not because they're questionable or rebellious, it's because we don't fear God. I mean, the story of Hosea is such a fantastic example of how God calls His prophet and He says, okay, Hosea, here's the plan I have for your life. Go and marry that prostitute. He goes, you're God, <laughs> I'm the prophet. He goes and he marries her and she remains unfaithful to him. I believe his whole life. While he remains faithful to her, his whole marriage. Which is, of course, God creating the prototype of Christ and the church. How when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And when we are married before God, we are faithful to our marriage before God in spite of our spouse. We are faithful to our marriage before God in spite of our own feelings. In this world, people fall in and out of love and they get divorced because ah, I just we fell out of love. Really? This is just really a great sign of zero fear of God. People used to get married for all different purposes. They get married for today. They used to get married for the purpose of posterity. They wanted to build community. They wanted to build nations and generations. They wanted to build heritage. Today, they get married not because they want to build. They get married because they don't want to be lonely. Or they want to get married because they just want to be loved. They want to get married because of how it makes them feel. They're gonna, they want to get married for a lot of different reasons. It matters why you get married. But here, in the fear of the Lord, it says, be subject one to another in the fear of the Lord. Now he's going to explain to us what this looks like. These aren't disconnected thoughts. This is the same thought. He says, be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. Here it comes, wives. Be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the, house, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. In everything. Okay? This is what being married in the fear of God looks like. That's what he said. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That's what it looks like. Submitting to your husbands. Then it says, the next verse, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
That's husbands, what it looks like to you to be married in the fear of the Lord. So my conclusion from looking at this portion of Scripture, especially looking at how it starts, is this. The reason <clears throat> the wife cannot be subject or submit herself to their husband is not because of who her husband is necessarily for most part, but it is because she doesn't fear the Lord who told her to submit to her husband. You see, her husband didn't, isn't the one who wrote this. It was God who wrote that. And so we have to say, God, I fear you. Therefore, I will be who you called me to be, even if they aren't choosing to be who God called them to be. You see, marriage is not a tit for tat. Marriage is me living before God. The wife who desires and delights in submitting to her husband. Listen to this. She isn't pleasing her husband. She's pleasing God. She's pleasing God. Then we also see that the reason the husband cannot love his wife as Christ loved the church isn't because he's fallen out of love with his wife. It's because he doesn't fear the God who told him to love her as Christ loved the church. The reason the husband loves her isn't because she's having a good day. No, it's because God told him and he fears God. The husband who desires and delights in loving and giving himself up for his wife isn't pleasing his wife by doing it. I'm not, I'm not giving myself to my wife in order to please her. No, I'm doing it. And as I'm doing it, I'm pleasing God. And that's why I'm doing it. You see, and if, 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 yours, if your marriage is Godward, the arguments go away. Well, you didn't do that, so I don't have to do this. Well, that's absolutely somebody who's married to one another before one another. Let me just tell you, your spouse is not going to hold you accountable to your marriage. You know that. Your in-laws are not going to be holding you accountable to your marriage. God is going to hold you by yourself accountable to the marriage no matter who you marry to. You're not going to be able to say, yes, but him. No, you're going to say, God, you said, and I feared you. I trembled at your word, and that's why I gave myself to you. This is faith. Trusting God enough to give yourself to what he said Trusting God enough to tremble at His word no matter what somebody else does. But you live your life before God and trust Him with your future. Trust Him with the outcome every day in every way. Amen. Do you get something out of the word today? Amen. Oh, and then finally, the fear of the Lord as a Bible student. The fear of the Lord as a Bible student. I use this verse already. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, But to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Who trembles at my word. Do you open up the word of God and tremble? It's like, oh, God said this. Or like, well, I'll think about it. No. The person who says, you know, God's been, yeah, God's been really working with me the last couple of months. He really needs me. He really wants me to change. And I'm just like, you know what? I'm like, He's been wrestling me and wrestling me. No, the reason it's taken a person so long and God's wrestled him so long is because he doesn't fear God. 
The person who fears God says, God, I tremble at your word. Look at that verse. It says, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. To be contrite in spirit is to be repentant. God, not my will, yours be done. God, not my way, but your way in my life. That's the contrite in spirit. The one who walks in repentance. He's always turning to God in every part of his life. Amen.